Hail, welcome to Owen's Alchemy. Today we have the great pleasure of welcoming a longtime friend of mine, uh, the host of uh, Alchemical Tech Revolution, who has uh, numerous books by the same name, uh, the brilliant Wayne McCroy. Uh, Wayne, please give everybody all your information and anything else you want to pimp out and let everybody know where they can find you if they uh, don't possibly know. All right, Ben, thanks again for having me on, man. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, I could be found over on Rockfin uh, at uh, rockfin.com backslash Wayne McCroy. It's the Alchemical Tech Revolution. Uh, also, the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast is available through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, I'm over on YouTube as well, Alchemical Tech Revolution. And my books are out there. I have four of them out currently and working on a fifth one. Uh, so people could check that out. I could also be found every Wednesday night. Well, almost every Wednesday night, I should say, over on Secrets of Saturn here on Rockfin as well. Uh, we do a weekly live stream where we uh, discuss various topics of importance. So uh, that, that's another place. And I'm a frequent guest and contributor over on Crow Triple Seven Radio, uh, if everybody's familiar with that one. So uh, I'll be back on there very soon. I'm supposed to be recording with them uh, within the next several weeks again. So uh, that should be a good one to look forward to, too. But uh, always a pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, Wayne. And and don't you have a new show also where you're discussing uh, uh, more uh, like Doctor Who, more more mundane topics that the. Uh... Yes, you're, you're correct. Uh, we have Jason and I have a new show that we're going to be doing. It's called Death of the Modern Hero. Uh, and that's also set up as a YouTube channel right now. And that'll be coming out in podcast form as well. Uh, so we should be starting that up very soon. We uh, did a test episode already. It was only about a half an hour or 40 minutes in length uh, discussing Doctor Who. Uh, and basically the whole premise of that show is we, we take a look at uh, different science fiction and fantasy properties out there in the entertainment media and uh, break them down. Uh, our goal here is to try and reach a, a broader audience, an audience that's interested in this kind of stuff and could kind of understand there's something going on behind the scenes with the Hollywood writing and stuff like that, but they don't quite have their finger on it. So we're trying to uh, do this in subtle ways where we could draw them over to the other platforms and stuff we're on uh, to get them more interested in the topics of social engineering, which is uh, one of our primary focuses on all of our shows. So that's that's the whole goal with that is to reach a broader audience. And it's going to be more uh, geared towards mainstream stuff. And uh, Jason and I are big nerds. So we we like those kind of things to begin with. So it'll be good to just uh, gripe a little about how they've destroyed many of the properties we grew up watching and enjoying. So uh, that's the whole uh, premise to that. So that should be starting up very soon, too. Awesome. It, it, that 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 thing is very interesting because uh the entertainment is, industry has tried to so heavily feminize things. And despite the science fiction uh, genre not being what you would classically think of as like manly man, like murdered or, you know, they're more, you know, uh, most people think of them as more like the basement dweller types. But the fact is, is they're still more about man stuff than your typical person that's out just interacting in average society. Um, you go to like, uh, all my kids played Yu-Gi-Oh! I played with the played for a while to play with my kids and whatnot. Um, and you know, the other different kind of like Pokemon, uh, uh, magic, uh, 
know, they got a million of these things. Uh, you go there, it's all boys and men, and they act more, they're more interested in more masculine things as opposed to when you go to like a more mainstream area like the mall where the guys might be wearing pink and things like that and doing very femmy things. Um, the, the dudes at these things are very masculine. So when they tried to feminize that genre, I, I really knew that that was not going to go well. Right. Well, this all links uh, to a, a larger uh, kind of uh, what we would call an agenda uh, and that's called techno feminism. And many people aren't aware that there's such a thing. And it uh, goes directly with transhumanism. It's a, a direct product of transhumanism. And it's a, a kind of a, a, it's a strange topic to look at, but there's a definite link there. It's um, it's been uh, pushed through uh, women's lib movement early on and stuff like that. And many of those uh, people that came forward through that movement have come into their own in the more realm, uh, more in the realm of science with this idea, with the techno feminism. And a lot of them latched on to the ideas of uh, what we would call now transhumanism and, uh, you know, the, the idea of using technology uh, as a means of advancing the human race and to do away with uh, gender inequalities and things like that as they saw fit. So that's that's kind of the, the definitive stance they take on the whole technology aspect of it. But there's a whole subgenre underneath the transhumanist agenda, which is this techno-feminist agenda. And it's actually taken on a very mainstream role uh, within the overall overarching transhumanism movement. And that's why we see these things happening the way we do. And uh, once again, it comes down to, uh, you know, messing with gender roles and stuff like that as well. Uh, this has been going on for many decades now in our society where they've engineered us into... Uh, accepting these new social norms, so to say. Uh, so uh, we see uh, the decline of the alpha male, right? And we see more of these beta males running around acting all feminized. And it's it's just not a good situation because uh, honestly, that's it's, it's a dynamic that happens in nature, right? And this is a move away from nature when you have no alpha males anymore and it's all betas running around. Uh, and I guess that's the, the most simple way we could put it as far as that whole thing goes. Uh, but it is it's a, a uh, an affront to how the natural order usually works. Uh, so there's a, a definitive place for all of these different archetypes throughout the natural order of things. And when you take away one of these primary ones, the alpha male, uh, the father figure of the family, the, the head of the family, traditionally, uh, all of these different ideas, well, it leaves a gap in the social uh, structure, doesn't it? And something has to fill that gap. So what fills that gap? Well, nine times out of 10, it's government, right? <laughs> they will take the role of the daddy figure and they'll tell you what to do and they'll tell you what you can and cannot do. And, uh, you know, we'll give you this allowance. You can do uh, just these couple of things that we tell you it's okay to do with this. And that's what they do. They stepped in and made the state the role model instead of the alpha male figure, which was normally associated uh, with that more masculine energy, which has always been traditionally part of the core of the family unit, because the basic family unit is the core unit of civilization, always has been, right? Well, they've been trying to break that dynamic uh, through all the social engineering they've done. So they take out that strong alpha male presence from that unit, and it causes dissension within the rest of the family unit. So they need to restore order to that chaos, because you know as well as I do, that's all part of their plan too. order out of chaos. 
Uh, so they, they do that by stepping in uh, as the state uh, to try to get some uh, normalcy back into that dynamic of sorts. But then they're intruding in your day-to-day life and intruding in uh, your individual rights. So that's essentially what's been happening here. Uh, they've really been playing the long game with it, too. But it all ties together uh, when you look towards the future into this whole transhumanist goal. And the, like I said, that whole techno-feminist idea, that all goes right along with it. It's all leading down the same trail to the same ends. Could not agree more. It's, it, it, it's really very horrifying to watch. And it really seems like a lot of that started in the so-called greatest generation um, where, you know, the Roosevelt, uh, where they started being offered, uh, you know, big government to give them the the cushion, give them the safety net. Uh, They just started immediately selling themselves. And it was, I mean, that was less than less, you know, not even two generations. And we're already completely fallen away from it where we are completely dependent on government they talk about uh during the great depression i remember when i was in school getting told uh stories about people going out and doing things like like sweeping the streets because they had been broken down so far that they couldn't take care of themselves and they finally had to accept something from the government so these people would go out and do tasks around the city uh, just to try and balance that out, make themselves feel better because they didn't have jobs and things like that. So you so you understand that in, in that time period, those were very independent people who were self-reliant. And to go out and just start working, doing something like streeping, sweeping the street, that's somebody that's been broken uh, because – they don't know how to make it. And that's the only thing that they've known how. And I don't think as a society, we've ever come back from that. We, we've, we've jumped right into the safety net and just fallen deeper and deeper with that. And at that point, like you said, uh, governments acting as, as the alpha, they're setting the rules. Uh, and as long as we're going to keep eating out of their field, we're going to do what they want. Right. That's that's all part of the whole dynamic that they put in place here. But you're absolutely correct there. Uh, That generation going back then, uh, that generation that we would call maybe the greatest generation or even the generation just prior to that. That's the world they knew. They were self-reliant. They were independent. Uh, They largely provided their own food, their own resources provided for themselves. Right. So uh, this was a different kind of mindset for them when they had nothing, nothing to work with. And they were dependent upon the government to maybe bring in resources for them or to to uh, supply them for them. Well, they they didn't feel right about that, because largely this is a generation that was taught the the uh, concept that if you don't work, you don't eat. Right. Uh, And this goes back to biblical principles and various other things, too. If you don't work, you don't eat. So uh, this was their mindset and their attitude. And it's a whole different uh, Um, set of uh, social norms than what we have today. That's been engineered out of society, that mindset, that mindset of independence and being able to supply your own needs for yourself and your family uh, to support yourself and your family. And it's it's become shifted uh, more towards this dependency state. And uh, this did start very much, well, I'd say it started a little bit, the, the, you know, slow decline, 
slightly beforehand, but with the new deal, like you said, when Roosevelt made the new deal, right? That's what primarily was the thing that went ahead and uh, really put this social network into place, so to say, uh, this, this safety net idea, right? And there's, that's that's the thing. Most people are are good with the idea or the concept of a safety net of some sort, right? But why should it be the government, so to say, that sets up the safety net for you and controls that for you? Now, if you had a safety net that was under your own control, that's different, right? But they that's not the situation they did here. Uh, so what they did is they they took uh, other people's property and goods and services and energies, their their labor, the fruits of their labor. Their monies, so to say, because uh, money, it's an economic system based upon the labor of the masses. So they stole somebody else's labor and put it into this pool to redistribute to others. Right. And that's not the way it should work. Now, I'm all for charity and stuff like that. Don't get me wrong. And there's nothing wrong with charity. But when the person that's can or, you know, the group of people, the organization, I should say, controlling this is notoriously crooked and corrupt, that becomes to be a real problem. And that's not to say that, you know, governments have always been like totally corrupt. But uh, the old adage goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So that being the case, the more... Uh, resources and power you put into the hands of this small select group of uh, uh, individuals that are supposed to represent you in this form of government, the more power that they wield, well, the more that goes to their head, right? The more they try to uh, wield that power. Uh, even if they go in with good intentions, eventually they become corrupted by the system. That's how the system was designed. It was designed to corrupt. And that's why things like, uh, you know, the whole communist ideal or the socialist ideal never seems to work, does it? Because it's always up to, they call it the state, to decide in what way to distribute the resources. Well, who is the state exactly? See, that's the whole problem that people don't think about. Now, in a perfect world, the state would do things on a, you know, a way where everything is equal. Everybody's supplied whatever their need is according to their need and according to uh, what their their contribution is. Right. But that's not how things work, because you put uh, imperfect men in charge of other imperfect men and the resources thereof. Well, there's bound to be mistakes that happen. And it's not always a nefarious thing, right? Where somebody's abusing mm -hmm. the system or something. It's just, we're fallible people. We're human beings. We're fallible. So we could make mistakes. We could overlook certain needs. We could overlook certain things. And uh, that being the case, the resources might not go where they're needed most. So, you know, when you're looking at a concept like this, it works on paper in theory at, at points, right? but it never has worked in practical reality. And it's, it's because of this reason, because different people have different sets of morals and values on work ethic and various things like that. So some people will contribute more and some people will take more. And uh, when it gets to the point where it's no longer worth contributing to the pool, when it gets to be where you're de-incentivized from contributing to the pool, the labor pool, so to say, then you pull back from that. And then you have more people taking from the system than putting into the system, and it will collapse under its own weight. And that's generally what happens with this type of thing. And I would argue it's it's been kind of designed that way uh, for uh, reasons uh, that lead 
forward into uh, the various things that uh, the power elite of this world are looking for. Uh, it's all about centralizing control all the more. Uh, so invariably, that's what happens. I have to wonder about systems of government. I, I have to wonder if any of them work after a certain size. I, I think it's the same concept as uh, talking to a couple of humans, uh, a couple other people. That's a good conversation. Talking to a mass, they're insane. And it's at some point, there's like uh, this, you know, switch gets flipped. And I wonder if the same thing doesn't apply to government because you even take uh, – straight the only straight socialists or communists i've ever met are uh, that are truly socialist and communist are uh, hutterites uh mennonites amish uh these people all the money goes to the to the uh, colony and the colony distributes according to whatever the needs are and things like that and uh these are extremely well functioning uh little little societies you know and each of these colonies is fairly small now let's say six of these colonies got together or or a colony had an explosion of uh uh size which doesn't happen because you can't join a colony it's all got to be uh from intermarriage um but say six of these joined together would then that uh system quit functioning at what point is, is, is a lot of that just because of the insanity factor after you get enough people involved in anything? I think that there's a good argument for that, Ben. I really do. I think that is the case. Uh, it sounds like a good idea on paper. And in the beginning, if you have one small colony like that, yes, it can work very successfully. The problem is when you start uh, combining these different colonies together, now say you have this regional board or something that oversees like six or seven of these colonies, like you said, uh, well, then, you know, how are those representatives picked from each of those colonies, first of all? Uh, how does that all happen, right? And a lot of this plays into it, too. So you'll begin to see that certain colonies tend to get preferential treatment over others with things. Uh, so they're reaping the resources from the other colonies. And I think that's that is the case. I mean, if it gets to the point where it reaches a certain size, then you have uh, where the individuals that actually get uh, this representative position start to get a sense of power and they get a taste for mm -hmm. that power. They're able to, you know, uh, dole out whatever kind of preferential treatment they want to whoever they want. Well, that gives them this sense of importance, doesn't it? Uh, and this is this all goes back to the, the whole human ego thing. Right. Pride. Right. It's, it's the whole pride thing that goes on with that, too. So they want to have this prominent position in society and they, they feel like they're an important contributor to society because this is what they do. So they will wield their power how they see fit. And eventually that leads to, uh, you know, some bad results at some point, because, like I said, we're all fallible. We're all human and we make mistakes. And uh, if you do. Uh, enough of the mistake making in a large enough area like that, people begin to notice. And once they notice, that's when things really start to fall apart. Uh, so that's when the system starts to fall apart under the weight of its own uh, mass, so to say, with this whole thing. Uh, so I, I would say there's definitely uh, probably something to that idea uh, because these things can be successful on very small levels. 
But when you do get the masses involved, that's when things fall apart. And this actually plays right into uh, something critical here, okay, about psychology, human psychology. There's regular human psychology, excuse me, of the individual. And then there's mass psychology. And there's this distinction because mass psychology works differently than regular psychology. An individual is smart, right? A person is smart. But people in a big group are very dumb. <laughs> they could be led around uh, by the nose, uh, however you see fit. Uh, th this is, uh, you know, why they, they use this type of public psychology uh, against the masses. That's why they target things at large groups of people, right? Because you could get a reaction out of the large group. It goes back to the old uh, thought form of, uh, say, the, the, the villagers with the, the torches and pitchforks going out after, yeah. you know, the witch or whatever in the village. It's the same kind of mentality. It's it's mob psychology, right? The, the psychology of the masses. Uh, it works differently than individual psychology. So uh, that being the case, these people who uh, wind up in positions of control, they're very familiar with these ideas and they know how to use the mob to get what they want. Uh, so that's what winds up happening. And that's why, you know, eventually these things break down, even if they start with good intentions and they may work on the smaller level for a, a period of time. The more time that goes on and the larger that this uh, structure becomes, the more corrupt it becomes. So that's why the old adage holds true. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would agree with that concept. I think the larger something gets like that, the more you have this potential uh, to erupt. And I, I think we're really seeing it. And that's why things like the idea of what they call globalism will never work adequately. Uh, the way that uh, they would intend it in a utopian type sense. Uh, it's not a utopian thing. It's going to be more of a dystopia if they ever pull it off. And that's exactly why, because people are different. Let's put it that way. Like there, there's different groups of people. They live in different areas. They have different cultures, different belief systems, uh, you know, all, all kinds of differences between them. And they may work well in their small little groups or their culture. And that's fine. And as, as long as, you know, they they have their own, values and, and core sets of rules and stuff they follow. But if you throw that into a wider, broader net here with everything else and try to govern every single culture group mm -hmm. in the same way, you're going to be running into all kinds of trouble. And that's exactly what I think is going on. So they're, they're pushing for this globalist idea or globalist mentality, and it just can't work. I mean, human nature, uh, just the very foundation of human nature works totally against that. So it, it works against the natural system. Let's put it that way. This whole globalist or universal governance idea works against the natural system because the way that we were designed in nature, the way that the natural world works and the natural order works, we were always very tribal to a certain degree, weren't we? So we stayed in our own little tribes and you know the tribes might uh, have commerce and stuff between each other and, and be amicable with each other and get along. But you didn't actually go and try to live with that tribe or try to tell that tribe what they need to do, right? Uh, and that's that's the whole point here. So any system that they're trying to set up that where it's it's one world government, one economy, one world currency, all of this stuff, one world religion, that's the one that, that's really, really going to uh, set them way back, in my view. Uh, when they try to actually go for that and, and try and do this ecumenical thing, uh, which they've been pushing hardcore lately, uh, that's when they're going to get a lot of problems coming back at them. So I, I don't know if they're fully prepared for the backlash they're going to get for that, 
uh, because they've gotten pretty hubristic in their their ideas now. They think they have people pretty much under you know under their thumb, so to say. They think they could actually roll this stuff out without much resistance. But uh, I think the events of the past two years we has didn't shown. Do what to prove them wrong, did we? What's that? <laughs> we did not. We did not do much to prove them wrong, did we? The, the um, last two years have been. Uh, you could not have five years ago. You could not have convinced me that the last two years would happen. You could not right. have convinced me. Well, the thing is now on the other side of those two years, people are waking up now. But is it too late? That's the yeah. question. Uh, that's the whole question. And I'm always eternally hopeful. And I would say it's not too late. Any way that people wake up to this no. nonsense that's been going on is a good thing, because the more they question it, the more backlash that these uh, scumbags in charge are going to get. Right. And, and that's the whole yeah. point here. I think they're seeing backlash now. They weren't expecting on a lot of different things. So now they're playing the whole distraction game with everything again, aren't they? Look over here. Look over there. Oh, here, here's a war over in, in Ukraine on this other side of the world. Oh, here's a mass shooting. Here's two mass shootings on a weekend of a full moon. One moon. In, 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 and, the last, in the last two months, we've had a, a war with Ukraine. We've had Nazis. We've had uh, we got the race war because one of those mass shootings, it also in, involved uh, race war nonsense. Yep. Uh, we've got Roe versus Wade. Like yep. it's like a greatest hits album all being played on high speed. That's right. I, I think they're panicking, man. I, I really do. I think they're panicking and they're, they're just trying to throw everything at the wall and see what see what sticks at this point, uh, because they don't want people to be prepared for what it is that they have coming next. And that's the point. And I think a lot of people are becoming wise to the whole situation. And now the newest thing I see is all of a sudden there's monkeypox. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. Monkeypox and aliens. Monkeypox and aliens. Monkeypox and aliens. Yeah, yeah, that's true, too. Aliens. I forgot about the alien thing. That's going on, too. Yep. The uh, UFO disclosure thing in, in Congress right now. This is like the first time yep. in 50 years at a congressional hearing about uh, the UFO phenomenon. So <laughs> it's all distraction, like in my view. Like, honestly, they're throwing everything they got at the wall now to see what mm -hmm. sticks. And they're hoping something sticks or at least a portion of each of it or, or something along those lines sticks so that people are. Uh, you know, kind of clued out as to what's really going on. And in the meantime, they're in the background having uh, a vote uh, at the World Health Organization with representatives from the World Economic Forum on setting up new standards for pandemic response within uh, the entire world, right? Whereas sovereign nations will uh, give power over to the World Health Organization and, and authority to the World Health Organization to handle uh, the situation in the event of a pandemic now. Uh, and they're supposed to be drafting that legislation and putting it to vote sometime uh, between now and 2024 is when they want to try to pass it. Uh, they haven't drafted the legislation yet, but they're meeting on this stuff and voting on it right now. So that should be concerning to people, but yet not a mention of that in the mainstream news anywhere, is there? Uh, you won't hear about that, but that's one of the important things because this this ties in the whole vaccine passport idea and everything right along with it. And that's exactly what they're looking for. They want to set up this digital control grid uh, with everybody assigned a number and uh, a biometric ID that tracks all your health data 
and uh, all your economic data, everything, everything about you, all tied to one utility, one central resource, and they could shut you off at the flip of a switch uh, or, and make you unable to participate in society. So that, that's the whole game plan. And, you know, it's uh, outlined in the Bible as the mark of the beast, right? And it's outlined other places as far as uh, things like that go. So uh, you could look and see all this stuff come into fruition right now. And you have to begin to wonder, you know, why, why are we as a people allowing it to happen? And a lot of it's because we've gotten too comfortable, right? That's, that's a lot of the problem. We've gotten too comfortable and complacent and uh, giving away our power to somebody else, our responsibility. Uh, that's what it is. It's, it's like handing over and abdicating our power and our responsibility to this representative uh, in, you know, government or whatever the system may be. And saying, "Man, that's above my pay grade. Let them worry about it, right? That's what we pay them to do. And that's what's happened here. So people are not interested in the important stuff anymore. Instead, they're interested in watching football or, you know, uh, watching uh, television, this kind of thing. So, uh, or going to a concert. They, they've compartmentalized what they know so much in that that they only typically have to know how to push a couple buttons or do maybe one very minor task. Um, you saw that again with that same generation we started talking about where the industrialization with Ford, where rather than uh, a, somebody putting together a car needed to have a basic knowledge of the entire car in order to put it together as one thing with all individual parts fitting together in like a harmony you have a whole bunch of people each doing one tiny thing. And at the end, you have something slapped together by somebody that's just slapping on parts. And and he nobody in the entire process really understands the entirety of the process. Um, and so, like myself, I live off grid and I live closer to what, you know, anybody today, most for the most part, lives to people say 150 years ago where I have to be very self-sufficient and the amount of things that I have to know and understand on any given daily basis. I, I have to literally be a veterinarian. Um, when vets come out, any vet worth their salt, that's a traveling vet. They come out to the farm. They immediately start talking to the farmer and start working with them because the farmer usually knows as much as the vet. We just don't have access to all the stuff the vet has, um, which that's that's slowly ending with today, you know, with all the different uh, eBay and all that. You see all current kinds of farmers doing their own fecals and things like that where they barely need the vet. Um, you know, I have to be an electrician. I have to be a mechanic. I have to be a plumber. I have to be a carpenter. I have to be a roofer. I, I yeah. <laughs> Tell like just any little thing. I have to be a farmer, uh, you know, which is includes growing, uh, and, and then on top of protecting the farm, uh, and I have to sleep real light light all night because a mountain lion a mountain lion showed up on our property right there. Uh, literally was sitting maybe fifty feet that way, hundred feet something like that. Um, I look out and I see them big red eyes. I was like, ah. You know, like I, I have to perform a hundred different tasks, not one. So that's right. that's a lot of knowledge. 
that is a lot of knowledge. And that's a lot of knowledge that uh, was kind of taken for granted, I think, back in the early days, like when, when you know, people were more self-sufficient. But that's kind of been uh, taken away from us now, right? It's kind of been engineered out of us. So now it's like most people, uh, they have a leak on the roof, right? Like if you had a, a leak or something, well, guess what you're doing? You're going up there with some tar and some shingles and you're going to fix it because there's nobody for you to call. Whereas the average person's like, oh, the roof's leaking. I got to call the roofer. I, I got to find somebody. Uh, so, you know, they're picking up the phone and calling somebody. Well, it's a different situation when you're self-sufficient and like you are off grid there. Yeah, you got to fix it all yourself. You have to know more about these things and these systems. And and that's that's an absolute truth. Uh, nine times out of 10, any veterinarian that uh, is worth his weight in salt will know you talk to the farmer about what's going on with the animals. Because not only does the farmer know probably just as much about the animals as the veterinarian, but he knows these specific animals even better because they're his animals, right? So he will notice things that the veterinarian might not pick up on. Uh, so it's that kind of a, a, a thing that uh, has been engineered out of us in a sense. So we've become very complacent and very comfortable because we could just call up this person with the specialized knowledge, right? Like, uh, you know, I, I have some pipes leaking that need to be replaced. Call the plumber. The plumber comes. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, that's 1500 bucks. What? <laughs> you know? Uh, but th that's that's kind of how it goes. So that that's the thing. So a lot of people have lost many of these practical skills that we really should all have to some degree or another. And I'm kind of guilty of that. I, I try my best to be handy, but uh, there are certain things that are above my pay grade, so to say. Like, I, I can't do electrical work worth anything. Like, that's not something that's in my wheelhouse at all. Uh, so something like that, I'm dependent upon somebody else. Although I understand electrical theory pretty good, I'm still not touching it because I don't know what I'm looking at. You know what I'm saying? So... I don't want to be zapping myself or something, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, Most it's of one of those. I know they're learned theory. I I'm good in both. I, I had the fortune of being field trained by like the, he's now the head of electrical at Colorado university for the yeah. professors. Um, I got field trained by him, but I'm way better in the field than he ever was. Even him like out in the field, you're like, dude, what the, are you doing like, you really know better than this i've heard you talk about it <laughs> right and see that's the thing somebody that's only been exposed to theory rather than the practical application of theory it's a different ball game isn't it and that's so much of what's wrong with our education system too uh, because that's that's what happens you get these people they go uh, they go to the, either these trade schools or these colleges. Trade schools are a little better because you get more hands-on experience that way. But you go to college, yeah. they teach you theory, right? It's theoretical application of this. And then they set free these college graduates into the workforce. They give them a good paying job uh, with some kind of uh, uh, like supervisory role or something like that. And the company starts to fall apart because they don't really know. They don't have the practical in-field experience. They just know the theory. And it doesn't always work the way it looks on paper, right? Sometimes you have to have that Ever. practical knowledge of what you're doing. Uh, I like to use the uh, example of, uh, okay, you're going to go climb Mount Everest. Now, do you want to have the college graduate that did his thesis paper on Mount Everest to take you up to the top of the mountain? Or do you want the Sherpa that's been up and down there 20 times? <laughs> which is the more practical thing to do? Which is which is the more reliable measure to go by? And sadly, Who our society... Who doesn't even know how to write? Who doesn't even know how to write? 
The Sherpa doesn't even know how to write. <laughs> like, I will still pick the Sherpa. Absolutely. And see, that's the thing, though. But our society is so uh, hyper-focused on uh, titles and degrees and things like that. Uh, a piece of paper that says, you know something. Well, that, that's all well and good. But can you apply that knowledge in the real world, like in a practical sense? And that's, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is knowing how to apply the knowledge, right? And uh, that's a sad thing that's lacking in our society. We don't have the practical skill set to get it done. And a lot of that comes down to experience, right? So, uh, you know, even though you have the theoretical know-how or background of it, the knowledge, you don't have the experience because you haven't actually done it. Uh, you've, you've read about it. You've learned about it. You know about it but you've never done it. And there's a difference uh, because we're uh, in the natural world. Human beings are doers, not just, you know, thinkers, so to say. We're thinkers and doers. And when you take something out of that process, it takes away from the experiential factor that makes it work. And that's where we're at as a society. It's all about theory and that's it. So uh, you see the same thing. Now they have all these college programs where it's all, it's all theory. And there's nothing practical yeah. that could come out of it. Like gender studies. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? Like, seriously, there's there's nothing practical in that at all. And yet they pay people big bucks to go push this stuff. And they're out there with their blue hair. And like, they are the worst pyramid scheme. <laughs> Even when it's not gender studies. So like my wife, her, she has a, a sister who has a, a, a wife. And the wife has this horrifyingly specific degree about like the biology of some specific exotic fish to where the only job she can possibly have is teaching other people who take the course about the thing that she has a degree in. Because there's no, there's, who gives a shit about this weirdly exotic fish? How many people could possibly have a job at this? And, and, and who's paying the bill on that? So it just turns into this pyramid scheme, even when it's not something as weird as gender studies, which is on the face of it useless. There's so many other useless ones that they're pushing there. No, that's that's a true statement. That it, like, does she actually have one of these fish in her care? Even I mean, that's what you got to ask that question. If there's so few of them and it's such an exotic species, that that's all you can do is find a job teaching about it rather than actually taking care of it. Once again, you see where it's removing the practical, the application of it uh, from from use. So, what good is it then? I mean, it's missing part of the pro process here, right? It's missing part of the the natural application of it. Uh, so that's the thing. And then, you know, there's various other ones, too, that are, are sort of useless kind of topics uh, for universities to teach as well, because there's not much you could even do with that. So, you know, it's it's, yeah. you know, the application. Not only is it the knowledge base. Right. But it has to be the application of the knowledge base, uh, which makes things actually operate. And we've been engineered out of that, so to say. So now that makes us more complacent and more dependent upon others. And a lot of that plays off of the whole compartmentalization angle, like you were talking about uh, in the early phases of this conversation here. Uh, that's absolutely what it's about. Because if uh, you don't have the broader scope of knowledge about it and the, the broader experience about it, 
you only know about the one little part, right? Like the guy on the assembly line. Maybe he attached steering wheels for 30 years. But uh, you show him the engine of the car. He has no clue what he's looking at. Same thing. So he might be an expert putting a steering wheel on in three seconds or something. But it's not practical if there's something else wrong, right? So it's the same kind of thing that goes on. Well, and, the, and then what's worse about it is if you don't have that overall knowledge of how something works when a, in, in a machine, we're talking about interlocking parts, even just something basic that's just a bunch of gears that are moving together in, in a system. These things are interdependent and they need to work in a certain way and they're going to work together in like a, a little dance. And if you don't have a general understanding of the entirety of that dance, what you're trying to make that one piece do might end up being completely counter to what the rest of the dance is trying to do. And so even though it looks right with that piece, if it doesn't quite mesh right with the rest of the system, which you don't have any understanding of, you're doing it wrong still. Right. Even right. though it looks like you're doing it right. Absolutely. And all it takes is one little component to be just slightly off. And this leads back to another topic, which is an important one that I like to talk about a lot. Uh, this uh, topic is called cybernetics. And that's the uh, approach that's taken by some of these people at the tippy top of the power structure. Right. They look at the overall system. They look at how to control the system because cybernetics is the science of whole systems control, not just the compartmentalized functions of each little piece, right? They look at what, how the whole system operates and they fight, try to find the most effective and uh, efficient ways of making that system work for them in certain ways. And uh, like you were just saying, if there's one little part out of sync there, well, that affects the whole system. Well, they understand this very well. And sometimes they break the system on purpose or they make the, the system malfunction in certain ways on purpose. And this applies across the board. It's not just machines, although machines are an important aspect of it. And it's a great allegory to use to understand how the principle works. But uh, th that's the whole point here. Cybernetics is the, the study of whole systems control, just for anybody out there who's not familiar with it. Because you hear the term cybernetics, you're thinking robotics and computers and all of this stuff, which is certainly part of it. Right, Terminator, but <laughs> it's certainly part of it, but it's not what the whole field's about. It's about systems control, controlling systems, and they could apply this to any type of system. Uh, so there's a couple basic theories that come into play here, and the machine analogy is a perfect one because it's something we're all kind of familiar with, and you can understand, okay, say there's gears and there's different mechanisms there. Well, if you put the wrong gear uh, in the wrong spot, well, it messes up the entire timing of the rest of the mechanism or machine, right? So uh, whenever the cyberneticists do this kind of a thing with a system, this is what they call creating a causal circuit, okay? When they put the wrong piece, the wrong input into the system to get a desired output, see? So that's the thing. So they're changing it up. So uh, with the analogy of changing the gear in the clock, say they want the clock to spin uh, like two minutes faster or something. They put a different size gear in there to make that happen. That's called using a causal circuit. So they gave you the input they want. They put in the smaller gear and they got the output they wanted by making the clock go two minutes faster than it should normally operate. 
So uh, then they could actually use this information again in order to uh, do other things that they want because now they have the input and the output. So this creates what's called a feedback loop. Uh, so they have this feedback loop and they could measure things with this feedback loop and understand what they need to do. So now say they wanted to turn the, the time back five more minutes so that the net overall effect would be to make the clock operate three minutes slower than it had originally, then they would change out another gear in the clock to make it function five minutes slower than what it is with the, the new gear in there. Uh, so this is an application of the causal circuit idea in order to get the output from the machine that they're looking for. And they apply this across the board with everything. It's not just machines and it's uh, goes along with biology, psychology, economics. The economy is a, a big giant cybernetic system. They could apply different inputs into the system to get outputs. Look at what they've done the past two years. They injected 80% of all the money that's ever been printed into our economy within the past two years. And look what's happening now as a result, input, output, see? So now they've created this feedback loop. So now what's next? So well, now they're gonna put other inputs into the big machine, so to say, into the economy. And it's gonna cause you know, logistics problems, supply chain shortages. Uh, it's gonna cause hyperinflation. All these things are going on. And eventually what'll happen is because of all of this, well, the system is going to fail. And when the system does, that's when they'll roll out the new digital system. See, they always have the solution in mind, too. So that's what they're trying to do with this. And it's a cybernetic application. So they use this cybernetic science for everything. And I would say cybernetics is actually a direct inversion of the older natural sciences or alchemical sciences. Uh, because it's all about inverting the natural system, the way it works. It's about disturbing the homeostatic model that's in place and uh, creating this causal circuit, so to say, uh, which inverts the natural processes. So they've been doing this across the board with everything. It works in biology too. Uh, it, it works, they've, they've done all kinds of uh, different studies on physiology and things like that with this application too. But uh, it's an important concept for people to understand. And that's essentially, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the idea of the machine because it's a perfect analogy to let people know how cybernetics works and what it really is, because it's not just robots and terminators and computers and stuff like that. Uh, although that is part of it, especially moving forward here. But uh, it's all about taking control. That's of absolutely fascinating. It's 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 really no different than understanding because they've got in order to make something grow, you've got to have chaos and you've got to have breakage. Even if it's something as simple as the human body, say you want your muscles to grow, you need to make a bunch of little rips and tears inside the existing muscles. And then through the repair of that is where you get your growth. Uh, something is what it is already. You can't make something more than what it is. So if you need, if you want it to grow, you need to have that chaos and then the growth's going to come out of the repairs are the new system that's going to have it so that's absolutely fascinating and i mean it, you know we can be against what they what they're doing and and we are uh wayne and i are uh despite uh differing uh religions and other things we're very much on the same side 99.9 percent .9 of the time um but you gotta hand them the brilliance you, you really do yeah 
Honestly, anytime Ben and I go get together in a conversation or something, it sounds kind of like a joke. An Odinist and a Christian go into a bar, <laughs> you know, it's the yeah. same kind of, but it's like we agree on much more than we disagree on. Let's put it that way. And we could we could agree to disagree on those certain things. But uh, primarily, I think we exactly. both have a lot of the same motivations and ideas in mind. And that comes back once again to the fact that, hey, people are people. We all basically want the same things in life. You know, and we all have the same wants and needs and, and this kind of thing. And we just basically want to be left alone. And if you're cool to me, I'll be cool to you. I can respect our differences. You know what I'm saying? And I, I see the same thing. So uh, that that's that's the whole important thing here. You could disagree with somebody on certain points without being arch rivals or bitter enemies or something. And that's another <laughs> engineered into society right now if you don't agree with me i'm banning you i'm blocking you or that kind of thing you know or uh, we can't be friends if you don't agree with me uh so it, it's it's really a sad situation that it's come to that but we could be adults and have an adult conversation and respect each other's viewpoints and maybe learn and like i said uh, uh i think we were talking in a private conversation like yesterday or something i said that's how we learn and grow right uh, by having disagreements. Yeah. If everybody had the same point of view and agreed on everything, life would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? And nobody would really learn anything new. So, you know, that that's the thing. I always enjoy these conversations because I always pick up new stuff from you, like things I didn't know before. Uh, so I always enjoy having these conversations, especially when it comes to the alchemical processes and things like that. And uh, that was another perfect application of what we're talking about here. When you were talking about if you're lifting weights, I'm a former power lifter, so uh, I've, I've seen that. I, I've experienced that. I know what that is. You have to work the muscle to failure before you could get good results and get growth from the muscle. Uh, that is kind of an alchemical process, and that's something I never put two and two together with until you just said that now. So that's like I said. It's a fascinating thing. I always enjoy these conversations because I always get something new out of it. Uh, so that's something that I've experienced in my life that equates to an alchemical process of sorts, right? And that's the thing, it's all around us. And uh, by and large, many of these people in positions of power that pull the strings try to invert this process or weaponize this process against the masses in certain ways. So uh, that that's largely one of the systems that they use or things that they use against the average human being that they're not even aware of that's going on. So they leverage ideas against the masses. And that's one of the things I like to point out to people. So, you know, it's, it's always good to be able to look back and understand, hey, this is where that idea comes from. This is actually what this is, what this is going on when you're seeing this natural growth taking place. Well, you have to have the, the chaos and the, the order cycle, the, the destructive process, right? The destroyer and then the rebirth. You, you have all these things it's part of the cyclical nature of things. So when you try to somehow either bypass or invert that system in a way or abuse that system in some way, that causes a problem. And uh, I equate that to the use of the cybernetics principles in that way, because that's what a lot of these people in positions of power have done. Really use these understandable principles to weaponize these things against us. That That's, that's such a brilliant statement all around brilliant I, I i love where you took that i didn't even know that about cybernetics i'm uh definitely uh that that's a fantastic statement yeah it's something i've i've studied heavily because the connections are all there 
they really truly are. And when you actually go back and, and research the early days of the history of cybernetics or uh, that kind of thing, it's, it's very fascinating to look at the roots of it. Uh, and cybernetics is actually derived from a Greek term called kybernetes, which actually literally means steersman or pilot. So it's always been all about control. Uh, and so that, that's the thing. And uh, there's a, a gentleman whose name was Norbert Wiener, who coined the term cybernetics and actually named it for what it is. And I'm sure that guy got picked on a lot in high school, but, you know, Norbert Wiener. But <laughs> anyway, that's beside the point. But uh, when you go back and you look at origins. I mean, I mean, on a double, that's like a double whammy. How is your name going to be Norbert and Wiener? What the fuck? <laughs> That's as bad as like Dick Trickle or Dick Buttkiss or something, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, he he applied uh, this whole th these uh, systems principles in certain ways, in mathematical ways, and things like that. And he's the one that actually named it. But uh, a lot of this could be traced back to the Macy conferences uh, back in the 1940s, the cybernetics conferences held by the Macy Foundation. Big shocker there, right? A philanthropic organization holding yeah. a some type of, a type of big conferences about controlling the world. Uh, so that, that's what they did. They found out uh, uh, that uh, here's how cybernetics came about. Uh, just to backtrack a little bit, if people are interested in the history of it. Uh, it it's actually derived from uh, the logistics and uh, the, the training that uh, was given during World War II, Right. They used uh, this operations research is what they called it, which was actually logistics training. So they, they took that. They got all these individuals from different fields of study, the quote unquote experts. Right. They pulled in from like anthropology and sociology and uh, mathematics, sciences of all different sorts. They, they brought together some of these individuals from all different fields of study and uh, they came up with rationals, rationales for utilizing resources, limited resources in certain ways during the war. Uh, so when they got these people together at different times in different meetings and stuff like that, they found out that a lot of the ideas they were putting on the table really worked really well. So they planned on after the war, what they would do is they would have some big conferences where they discuss these ideas and utilize them into a new discipline of study, which they wound up calling cybernetics. So that's what happened. And that's how the cybernetics group came about. They were contracted uh, by government to figure out the logistics of the war. Uh, so when they had were doing this, they decided they all got along so well and came up with such great ideas bouncing off of each other from their different fields of study and interest that they decided that it would be a good thing if they got together and tried to uh, put together this framework for this new field of study. So that's how cybernetics came about. Uh, so it's an interdisciplinary study as well of whole systems control. So you have different facets from different fields. So you have like mathematicians and computer science guys uh, working with biologists, anthropologists, people that study cultures of various sorts, sociologists, psychologists, all these people working in tandem to try and figure out the best ways to control systems, not just systems, but systems. Full of... They're what? Yeah. They're trying to be fucking, they're trying to be like the ancient alchemists. Like even the ones where they talk about, because like, look what you're talking about. When you to ancient alchemists, even like the, the legendary stories when you read them and stuff, the ones that are supposed to like basically be timeless beings, but they're not awake and active all the time. 
that's because they understand that certain have to take time to evolve. So they only appear during these moments to put certain pieces into play. And then in times when, you know, you just need to let that, you know, you've done planted the seed, you just need to let it grow and, and, and you're going to harvest it later. Then they go back and reserve themselves. It's the same damn concept. Yet you're absolutely right. And there's another connection that I never made on my own until you said that just now. But yeah, I mean, you could absolutely see how it is kind of a, a cheap knockoff and artificial knockoff of the old alchemical sciences in, a, in that way, right? So that's essentially what they've they've done uh, when you're talking about uh, this kind of thing. Uh, they're, they're trying to invoke the powers of the alchemist, like the classical alchemist, uh, you know, the ability to cause transformative change in things. That's what they do uh, through the use of the cybernetics approach. They change up the whole system by injecting that new causal circuit idea into the system right. and steering the feedback loop in that way to cause slow evolution, so to say, of the thing that they're trying to change in the system. Uh, so you could see how it's, it's totally like an artificial knockoff of a natural cycle in certain ways. Uh, so that's the case here. That's why I always will maintain cybernetics is the inversion of the alchemical processes, right? Uh, I don't know if inversion's absolute correct term, but it's like the alternative that they're giving to the natural system, right? So this would be an inversion process of sorts because they're trying to make it a wholly artificial system rather than the natural system. That's what they're trying to do. Change the entire system that we live in, the entire world. Uh, this goes much deeper than just transforming human biology and transforming man into uh, what they call the post-human, right? Or the next level of evolution, as they call it. Uh, it goes way beyond that. It's about in changing the entire place we live, the entire earth, uh, to the point where they've, they've been jacking with the skies, jacking with uh, the frequency bands of everything, like the Schumann resonance. Uh, they've been jacking with that, the magnetic fields, everything. And they've been using a lot of these technologies and these ideas, these cybernetics applications to try to do so. And they're, they're kind of shifting it slowly over time because it's, let's face it, it's very difficult to make some kind of a transmutation in an in instant, isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. And, and, and it's so easy to see where because part of being an alchemist is a, a spirituality that most people will never grasp because those people have part of that spirituality is such a, a deep connection with nature where you have literally intimately uh taken things apart and put them together and you're seeing how they work and getting this overall much larger picture and it, it's the same concept as somebody who took and built an entire car from front to back that that person has they love that car they have a spirituality about that car they're like she's my baby and she does this and this goes together like this so you know and they're you know as opposed to some guy who yeah i bolted on the fucking steering wheel so it's easy to see where they've taken the great work with these people and because of compartmentalization through this cybernetics where they've taken experts out of all these fields and they've but and made the basic equivalent, but without that singular person having all of those things. So they're seeing it as like the whole car, which, again, is what contains the spirituality.
uh, they've removed the spirituality out of the great work from the society. And you can see where that's easy enough then to have absolutely no morality. Absolutely. And that's that's a key point that you just made there. Uh, when you remove that whole, whole kind of concept, and we're talking in our modern society, we have everybody's very specialized. They do that one thing and that one thing only. Well, at the top of the power structure, there are people that understand the whole system they're trying to manipulate, right? So they have this one person who knows maybe, say, uh, how to replace gear B in the clock, like we were talking about before. So this person knows that gear and the specifications of that gear and how to tweak that to make that gear turn so that the time on the hands on the clock turn faster or something by two minutes. Uh, so he will assign this person that task or have that person do that task, not knowing what the ultimate outcome is going to be from the other parts of the clock that are being manipulated by the other people in their compartmentalized uh, functions within that. So this creates that whole system of plausible deniability as well. And this is where we're at. Yeah. And this, this is why when you look on the television, on the news that comes across the screen, and you see these things, and you have this awareness of how these things operate in a, like a more alchemical sense or a more natural sense, you, you understand, you inherently get that feeling, something's not right here. And when you understand the mechanisms of how this works, how everything's compartmentalized to this level uh, in different aspects of our society, then you begin to understand this is just one piece of a larger overall effect that somebody who knows what they're doing is trying to uh, manipulate and make happen, right? And But nobody who's really implementing these things at that base level, at that compartmentalized level, understands what the outcome is. So this creates that whole plausible deniability aspect to it, too. And uh, this is why people will throw their hands in the air and say, it's just got to be a coincidence, right, with everything that's going on. So, but but we see it. I mean, if, you, if you're somebody that, that looks deeply into these things and understand on the surface level, when you see something that play out in a movie or something, and then later it comes to fruition in the real world, you understand that's predictive programming, that it was put there on purpose. Somebody engineered it that way. But you can't prove that because, you know, they'll tell you, well, that's coincidence. That's just ridiculous. Do you know how many people would have to be in on it? Right? You betcha. <laughs> you hear you that? Betcha. How many people do you think? Not very many. That's the, no? that's the sad answer is not very many because of compartmentalization. Not very right. many really have to be in on it, and they will never truly understand that. that, right. that two, people, two people can be the only ones that know, and the rest are just doing their job. Right, and that's the whole key right there, especially the way that our education system has become this compartmentalized thing, right? Uh, you notice how they teach kids anymore in school. Well, you have math class for 40 minutes, and then you have history class, and those two never touch uh, it's just this short little segment that not only, first of all, lowers your attention span to that of like a goldfish, but second of all, <laughs> none of these concepts ever touch in a practical way. So there's no world application in that type of a setting. And it further uh, engineers your mind to accept things in this compartmentalized way. So when you actually get out of school or graduate or whatever, and you go out and you find a job, well, your job is going to be one thing right? You are responsible for one thing. Your job is a compartmentalized job. Uh, and that's what you're responsible for. That's what you know. And you don't know 
what the CEO at the top of the com company has in mind, but you know what he expects from you. And there you yeah. go. So it creates this plausible deniability. And you think, well, no, they couldn't be doing that. I mean, you know, so uh, but you're just a cog in the wheel, so to say. And that, that's how it works. It's the whole compartmentalization. So you betcha. Well, with that, that's a that's an absolute fire first hour. Uh, go ahead, Wayne, and uh, let everybody know where uh, to find you again. And then we're going to take a little break and jump up onto the just the Rockfin side where we can feel free to uh, say some of the things that uh, we dance around on YouTube. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again, Ben. Always a pleasure speaking to you, my friend. Uh, I could be found on Rockfin. I could also be found on uh, Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts. It's Alchemical Tech Revolution. I have a YouTube channel, Alchemical Tech Revolution. I post some stuff on there, but because of censorship reasons, most of my good stuff I put over on Rockfin. And I do have all the books available. Uh, my latest one that just came out at the end of February is called The Demic of Pan, Breaking the Natural Order. Uh, that's an interesting one. And I think we're probably... Now. I've been now. impressed. Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll talk about that because there's a lot of things that have actually uh, come to my attention since the writing of that book now that align with other things that uh, I, I have just now discovering that kind of uh, um, really drive the point home with the whole thing. So uh, we'll get into those discussions too on the other side. Thanks again, Ben. Absolutely love it. With that, bye-bye to YouTube and all the other little platforms. We'll see you on the Rockman side.